0: Good morning. It's good to see you. We will have a scripture reading in a little while from Joy, but I'm going to intro a few things first. Just put all of own stuff back. <laughs> um, back in 1965, uh, the co-founder of Intel which is the computer chip manufacturer, a guy called Gordon Moore, made an observation that has had a huge effect on Western culture. He noticed that the number of transistors per square inch on integrated computer circuit boards, I have no idea what that means, okay, but it sounds good, um, had doubled every year since their invention the number of transistors per square inch on integrated computer circuit boards had doubled every year since their invention. Here is a graph to illustrate the point uh, for those of you who are interested. Um, And again, I've got no idea what it means, but it looks good. And based on this observation, Moore developed a theory that we now know as Moore's Law. Some of you will have known this if you're in the IT world particularly. And he basically said that this trend will continue forever. And that shaped the thinking, and therefore the engineering and kind of planning of the entire uh, hardware sector for computing. And until recently, this was true. Hence the graph. So, in 2000, there were 100 million transistors uh, in a Pentium 4 processor, compared to 4,004 equivalent in 1970. Now, they hit slowed down. Because basically you can only get things so much smaller before they become too small to actually make, right? So the technology world apparently is now kind of in crisis because they don't know how to speed things up. Uh, This doesn't work anymore. But nonetheless, for 50 years this proved to be true and we have seen dozens of benefits as a society because of this. His vision, his insight, shaped an approach to technological development that has resulted in mobile phones, like my iPhone. There is more technology in this than the spaceship that took Neil Armstrong to the moon. It's a terrifying thought. We have our smartphones. We have tablet computers. uh, We have, throughout most sectors now, if you think about transportation, healthcare, education, energy production, we have in all of those sectors and more, the benefits of Moore's insight. Technology shaping all of those sectors in such a profound way. What happened in 2007? Can anyone tell me? Oh, it's gone up already, it's not meant to have gone up. 2007, Steve Jobs introduced the world to the iPhone. 2007 is now considered by everybody to be the birth of the digital age. We live in what's called the digital age by some commentators. It's 10 years old uh, and that phone and everything that's come since then has massively shaped our entire culture and society. Can you imagine being without your smartphone? We'll try it one day. It would be a good discipline for us. Actually, in 2007, uh, Facebook uh, went from being a a college-only thing to a global platform. Anyone with an email address in 2007 could then get a Facebook account. Let's not have a conversation about Facebook. Twitter was launched, Apple launched the App Store, and cloud uh, computing began. It's the official start of the digital age. And so if you're 20 years or younger, You've known nothing else. My eight-year-old said to me recently, Dad, how old were you when you got your first mobile phone? Slightly agitating for one. And I said, I think I was about 24. Uh, And he looked at me like, what the heck? If you're older than 20, you might, might remember this thing called boredom. Do you remember that? Like you're on the plane and unless you paid good money, there wasn't like, it wasn't an airline with a movie thing, and it was only one option anyway, if you did have that. There was no technology like a phone, so you did this thing called boredom. And actually boredom is really good for us. It's the, actually often the birthplace of creativity. But if you're 20 years or younger, you've always had these technological devices around you, and we're going to talk more about that next week, when we look at digital addiction. All of this, however, has come at a cost. Huge benefits, but actually a real cost. Most uh, cultural commentators would say that we are living in a key inflection point in human culture, particularly in the so-called developed world. It's a time in history that actually we will look back on and say there was huge, significant factors at play that massively shaped the destiny of human history. Similar to uh, 1440, creation of the Gutenberg Press and all that came with that, the digital revolution has triggered a massive expanse, uh, expansion of technology and information and knowledge and all of that stuff, I and mean, it's all wonderful, but actually, it's having a huge cost, too, to all of us. Uh, one of the best books I read last year was a book called "Thank You for Being Late." Uh, it's not a comment on people who turn up to church late. Um, but thank you for coming nonetheless, uh, even if you were late. It's actually a comment on uh, how to live well in a culture that is speeding up all the time. Thomas Friedman wrote it. He's a New York Times columnist. He says this, The three largest forces on the planet, technology, globalization, which is only possible because of technology, and climate change, which is speeding up because of globalization, are all accelerating at once. And he goes on to say that never in human history have we had such strong forces all at play at the same time. And then he goes on to say this, and our societal structures are failing to keep pace with the rate of change. Which is why we are seeing an epidemic of anxiety and depression, and marital breakups, and children uh, with eating disorders, and on and on could go the list. And he goes on to say, we have to do something about this. Uh, Modern society is increasingly toxic to the soul. There's so much we could point to, There's loads of trends that people are observing. I can direct you to some good reading on this if you're interested. Here's one that I found fascinating. In 2014, apparently, the average attention span of a grown adult, that's us, was 12 and a half seconds. And last year, it was eight seconds. Now, I don't know how they measure these things. I don't know what you think of that. My immediate reaction is, like, we started with 12 and a half seconds. (laughs) Like, wowzers. We really are in trouble, aren't we? Uh, And economists talk about something now called the attention economy. Uh, Economists are observing that what tech giants are doing, what the app store is about, what software developers are trying to do, is get your attention because our attention span is reduced, and so we're fiercely competed over. And so you've got this, co- this culture around you that's trying to get your attention through multiple access points. And it's creating stress in us. So Linda Stone, who uh, works for Microsoft, uh, she said this, if I can get this to work, bam. Uh, we now have something called continual partial attention. Continual partial attention. We only give things partial attention. We are trying to give multiple things attention at the same time, all the time. So we are with our children, if we have them, and on our phone. We're in a meeting, and we're clearing our emails. We are at church, and we're texting our (laughs) mum. And actually, that's problematic for all sorts of reasons. Uh, Some of you may have heard of a guy called Tristan Harris. Uh, He used to work for Google. He left because he had an ethical issue. He had an existential crisis uh, because he realized that basically software developers were facilitating and fueling this. Because that's where the money is. The money for software developers is in getting your attention. The only way they can get your attention is to distract you from something else. And so he left and he set up um, a not-for-profit arguing for uh, the equivalent of the medical Hippocratic Oath for software developers, as in do good, right? Only do good. Save lives, not contribute to their decay and their decline. And he says this, We check our phones more than 150 times per day. Knowledge workers spend a third of their day in email. Teenagers aged between 14 to 17 send 4,000 texts per month, or every six minutes that they're awake. The more we live by our screens and spend time there, he says, notice this, the more we live by their design choices. Parents of teenagers, yep. By the way, all the research on this in teenagers says, well, that's what my parents do. (laughs) Maybe not as bad, but we uh, model something, I think, unwittingly. Why does all of this matter? What on earth has this got to do with practicing the way of Jesus? I hear you ask. A couple of things. Uh, This new context, I would suggest, of distraction and therefore addiction is robbing us of the ability, the core, essential human ability, to be present to other people, to ourselves, and to God. And so, robbing us of our soul. What good is it, said Jesus, to gain the whole world, but forfeit our soul? Um, Owen and I read an article last year from the New York Times by a guy called Andrew Sullivan called I Used to Be a Human Being. You can go and Google it. Uh, and it's a story of when he, went to, he chose to go and experience a digital detox retreat for a week. And in the last paragraph, he says this I love this There are books to be read, landscapes to be walked, friends to be with, life to be fully lived. And I realize that this is, in some ways, just another tale in the vast book of human frailty. But notice this. This new epidemic of distraction is our civilization's specific weakness. And its threat is not so much to our minds, even as they shape-shift under the pressure. The threat is to our souls. At this rate, he says, if the noise does not relent... We might even forget we have any. How good is that? Put another way, uh, one of the guys that's blowing my mind, a guy called Ronald Rollheiser, he says, we are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. And at that point we pause to hear two passages of Scripture read by the lovely Joy... So, if you've got a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter four.
1: So, the first part is Matthew four, verses one to three, the temptation of Jesus. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. The second part. Is Mark 1, 35 and 39. Jesus prays in a solitary place. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you! Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so that I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he travelled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons.
0: Thank you. I hope uh, my little introduction has disrupted you, (laughs) got your attention. I'm trying to get your attention from something else. Deliberate pun there. I think Ronald Rolheiser's right. Who would agree? (laughs) Nervous, like, yeah, yeah, we're in this together, okay? This is why together we're having this conversation. How do we model something to one another and then to the world that's a better way to live. How do we practice the way of Jesus so that actually we don't become someone who conforms to the way of this world, but is transformed? Which is what we were talking about last week. And so the question is, is there a spiritual practice that would help us thrive in the middle of this cultural moment? Because the reality is we can't just go with it, and nor can we escape it. We have to learn to live well within it. And the answer, of course, is yes. And so today we're talking about silence and solitude, which actually are two practices, technically, but historically have always come together, like cheese and wine. (laughs) Uh, So Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. The first thing that Jesus does after his baptism is to go straight into the wilderness. He's led by the Spirit. So he's willingly taken by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. The word in verse 1 is desert in some translations or wilderness in others. And in the Greek, it's the word ramos. "eremos," And it, best, or it can be translated in multiple ways. But it literally is the wilderness uh, or a solitary place or the lonely place. I quite like that one. The quiet place. The deserted place. So when you think wilderness or desert, don't necessarily think, you know, like nothing there uh, in terms of landscape. It's It's more of an environment where you would be on your own, and it's quiet and solitary. And all four Gospels teach us how Jesus engaged with the Eremos. All four have this set of stories, often that overlap... And I think Matthew 4 is perhaps a frame of reference for us for all those other stories. Now, I have to confess that uh, this uh, clarity for me came out of a conversation with someone that we've been mentioning before, a guy called John Mark Homer, who I spent some time with over the summer, and uh, he helped me see this, so I take none of the credit for this genius theological insight. Um, Please give him the credit, not me. Have you ever wondered, when you've read this story, Why Jesus is led by the Spirit like this? It's interesting, isn't it? Day one, after his baptism, begins his public ministry. What does he do? He's led by the Spirit into the wilderness, into the Eremos, for 40 days. Why would the Spirit do that? I get that he needs to face the enemy. I get that he needs to confront the tempter. We've talked about that in the past when we looked at the theology of this. Jesus undoes what Adam and Eve did. It's redemptive. I get that. But why then? Why there? Why this way? I've always struggled with this. Why would the Spirit lead Jesus into the wilderness to then do that? Why 40 days of fasting and praying and then at the end of it face the tempter, the enemy. You might, like me, have assumed that it was because actually the enemy came at Jesus's weakest point, that actually Jesus wasn't intending for this to happen, or or somehow this was kind of out of his control, and it would be just like the enemy, wouldn't it, to come and get him at his weakest point? That's my experience of spiritual opposition is when I'm weakest. When I'm hungry, angry, lonely, tired, or a combination of all four, ugly, that's when I most likely face spiritual opposition and temptation. So I kind of assumed, yeah, that's what Jesus is experiencing. 40 days of fasting and praying. Of course he's hungry. Of course he's physically weak. That's the perfect moment, isn't it, to get him? To kind of, the devil knows he's not going to win, but at least he's got a chance uh, there and then to delay it or make a point. But what I realized was helped to see is that we've had it backwards. See the Eremos, the lonely place, the solitary place, it's not the place of weakness. It's the place of strength. Spiritually. After forty days of silence and solitude, fasting and praying. Jesus was at peak spiritual strength, if you like, and so best able to face up to the devil on behalf of all human history. And so this is why, I think, over and over again, we see Jesus come back to this place, to the Eremos. So notice Mark chapter 1. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up. Left the house and went off to a solitary place. In the Greek, it's the word eremos. And what does he do there? Where he prayed. Do you see the pattern here? Jesus goes to the eremos for 40 days. He comes back for one day. So, Mark 1 is basically day one on the job after this. This is what happens. And after one day at work, Jesus goes back to the eremos. He chooses that. Spending time for Jesus in the Eremos was not a one-time thing. It was a practice woven into his life. So if you've got a Bible in front of you, turn over to Mark chapter 6. Uh, Have a look at verse 30 through to 33. Then Jesus, uh, sorry, then because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, ever feel like that? He said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place, it's the word, a in Greek, and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. It's the same word, a in the Greek. But many who saw them leaving recognized them, ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of him. Nightmare. Okay. Notice, it's come with me. Come with me. So Jesus is teaching his disciples, he's modeling it, they're apprentices, he's showing them how to do it. Come with me. Where? To a quiet place. To the Eremos. What we need, friends, is not another distraction or escape. The answer to what we face culturally is not to binge watch The Crown on Netflix As good as the crown is. It's not another glass of wine. It's not another trip to the shops. It's not a late night out on the town. What we really need is time alone with Jesus in a quiet place. So verse 32, they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place, the Eremos. And the plot twist, of course, is, as we've seen, is when they get there, everyone's got one well on ahead of them. And actually, it's interesting, Jesus still ministers to them, and it's not until later that night, when he's absolutely exhausted, that it says he went to be in a place of prayer. Because praying and being with the Father in the Eremos was more important even than sleep for Jesus. And he liked sleep. Like, you know, read the story. He's good at sleeping. So he got his priorities right. And I hear that story and I think, it's so like my life. Do you ever feel like you're trying really hard to build a bit of space into your life for you and God and it gets invaded? The kids barge in or a phone rings or your email comes and takes out your evening because your boss needs something by the morning and we can critique that and all sorts of things like that. There are all these forces against us. Jesus had the same thing, but he still made his priority being in the Eremos. Because whilst it's a solitary place... As in there's no other people there. It's in that place that he could be present to himself and to God. And so Luke chapter 9 records, uh, sorry, Luke records nine times where Jesus goes to the Aramos. That's your homework. Go and track it and see the pattern. Here's just one of them. Luke 5 verse 16. Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. He often did it. So my question to you would be, how often do you, do I, withdraw to the Aremos to pray? Because if Jesus needed to do it in a cultural context when there wasn't Moore's Law and a smartphone, then I'm telling you, in as much love I can as your pastor, so do you. So do I. And what you'll notice if you do the homework is that the busier Jesus got, the more exposed he became as the Messiah and the more demands on him and the more conflict he was experiencing in that, the more he withdrew. Which if I examine my life, even just kind of arbitrarily, I notice that the busier I get and the more demands on me and the more stuff I have to deal with, which frankly I shouldn't, have to, the less likely I am to withdraw and go to the Aramos. We've got it the wrong way round. And we all share that problem, I'm sure. But this going to the Aramos was a regular and normal practice of Jesus. And so we come back to 2017 and our digital age. And I want to suggest to you that if you only do one thing out of this teaching series... Which, as I've said in the last few weeks, we'll pick up and keep running later in the year. It would be this: to build silence and solitude into your everyday, ordinary life. And this is actually the first and most important practice. It's so radical, it's so countercultural, and it's so possibly potentially transformative for us all. Here's a working definition of the practice of silence and solitude. Um, This is from Dallas Willard. He says this, Intentional time in the quiet to be alone with ourselves and God. That's what it is. Intentional time. Notice that word. We keep coming back to it, don't we? Intentional time in the quiet to be alone with ourselves and God. So it's two things. It's silence and solitude. They come well together like Simon and Garfunkel, Owen and Rich, and uh, so uh, just a quick word on each. S- silence is kind of self-explanatory on one level, but I would just draw your attention to what any psychologist or counsellor will tell you, which is that there are effectively two dimensions to silence. There's external silence, or noise, and there's internal silence, or noise. The external silence that we need, particularly in a noisy culture, is that when all around you there's no noise that's distracting you. Some noise is actually helpful, the sound of the birds is not always a distraction. But traffic, or Radio 5 Live, or music, or the TV, it immediately stops you from entering the eremos if you want to have silence in your life you've got to turn off all the sources of noise that distract you. Which means almost certainly most of us won't be able to do it at home unless you live in a place where it's relatively quiet. One of the things I'm thankful for as an introvert is that the vicarage is in the quietest little corner I think of the city. And so there's very little noise there. It's when we turn off the voices around us we are listening to input and talking how often do you get in the car and put the radio on how often do you go for a run or a dog walk and you've got a podcast in, in your headphones it's all good it has its place but it's not silence it's not solitude I think we uh, overvalue talking in our culture and we undervalue silence one um, mystic says have you noticed that the more you talk the more you sin <laughs> The more you talk, the more you're likely to sin. You say something you shouldn't or you don't mean. So, right. Okay, so there's external silence that we need, but we also need internal silence. And actually, this is harder. One of the reasons why we fill our lives with external noise is it drowns out the internal noise. It's an escape from the internal clutter and chaos of our hearts. Uh, If you're anything like me, on a bad day, it's more obvious, but in my mind and in my heart, often there's a whole mix of good things, but also other things like fantasy, revenge, anxiety, uh, self-disqualification. It's exhausting being you, isn't it? Being me. Silence, the kind of silence I'm talking about, is when we have both external quiet and internal quiet. And you can't get the internal quiet unless you have external quiet and so you can enter into the Eremos and be still and know that he's God and that his peace comes and silences some of those voices and at the very least pauses them and allows you to engage with them and process prayerfully what's going on there. The second is solitude. I think it's very difficult to have proper silence if you're not on your own, although there's a place for it in community, and we'll come back to that a little bit later. Uh, Without silence, I don't think there really can be solitude. Now, just to be clear, solitude is not the same as loneliness. Solitude is not the same as loneliness. That's a separate conversation. Uh, One writer puts it like this. There is a difference between isolation and solitude. They may contain similar characteristics, but in reality, they are worlds apart. Solitude is a chosen separation for the refining of your soul. Isolation, he says, is what you crave when you neglect the first. Isolation, when we choose to isolate ourselves, often subconsciously, it's an escape from, not an entering into something. Okay. And when we do that, we end up lonely and it's toxic for us. In silence and solitude, we decompress from the non-stop stimulation of our society. Remember, it's constantly trying to get your attention. We live in an always-on culture. One of the things you have to learn to do is turn off some of those things. Turn off all the notifications on your smartphone. It's not that smart. It's quite dumb. Turn off your email. Don't let it ping. Don't let your text messages come through. It's very obvious, very simple. Say more about that next week. Don't automatically turn on music or the TV or the radio. Think carefully about your diet, what's coming in all the time. Build in as much silence as you can. In silence and solitude, I think we slow down long enough to feel the emotions that we're often running from. That's certainly been my experience as I've practiced this over the last 18 months or so. We face the good and the bad and the ugly in our heart and actually face up to the lack of desire for God that's really not there. It's in silence and solitude that we face up to our insecurity, our addictions, our fears. And we're able to get the right perspective on who we are and what's yet to become true for us. Jean Vanier, French, amazing French priest, I guess, says we come home to God and ourselves when we enter the Eremos. But when we don't get enough of it, and by the way, we don't. Extrovert or introvert, some of us prefer it more than others, I know. But regardless, when we don't get enough, we feel distant from God. We feel disconnected from who we are. And we struggle to meaningfully, healthily engage with other people. We end up using them rather than serving them. We end up living off someone else's spirituality. Reading a book or listening to a podcast or tracking someone's Instagram feed to help us connect with God rather than ourselves praying and ourselves reading the scriptures. We lose sight of who we are and what God's called us to. Our priorities get out of whack. We end up trapped in something that uh, people call the tyranny of the urgent at the expense of the important and the valuable. We get sucked into escapism, not engagement. Uh, all sorts of ways we do that alcohol, pornography, TV, church. <laughs> you can hide from God in church. I've said that before. We become emotionally unhealthy, and actually, what happens is we start to live a reactionary life. We end up living in reaction the whole time to what's coming at us. All of those are signs and symptoms of a deficit of silence and solitude in our lives. We need it. And if we don't make a response to this, in a culture that's speeding up, that's getting noisier all the time, we will face spiritual oblivion. And it's my job to tell you that, and try to help us work out how together we might do something about it. Henri One says this, Without solitude, it is virtually impossible to live a spiritual life. We do not take our spiritual life seriously if we do not set aside time to be with God and listen to him. I love that. It's so blunt. Like, no mucking about. We talked last week about the spiritual formation paradigm, that intentional approach to spiritual formation. This has to be number one practice built into your everyday ordinary life. In a moment I'm going to ask Paul to help us think through how we do that, because um, I realised quite early on in prepping this that I'm learning, but he's a bit further down the road, a lot further down the road. But just one comment. Uh, on this. It's interesting to me that um, if you go into Waterstones, I've told you about my love affair with Waterstones, or any bookshop, frankly. Um, there's a section now called mindfulness, which is bigger than the Christian spirituality section. And as far as I can tell, that is silence and solitude for the secular age. And interestingly, it has its roots in Christian spirituality, but because we live in a post Christian culture, they can't say that. And so it's all attributed to Buddha. And to Zen and all of that stuff, but actually, when you scratch underneath the surface, it's rooted in the practices of Jesus himself. And I say that because actually, this is our cultural moment, Church. That like one of the most profound ways you might uh, bear witness to the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is to embrace the eremos, because that's when you'll be at your spiritual fittest. <coughs> Most able to withhold the attempts of the enemy to distract you and destroy you, and most able to lead people into life. So it's not just for us, it's for them as well. So just pause for a moment while we rearrange the furniture, and Paul joins me on the bishop's thrones that we borrow whenever we do this. And while you do that, I'd love you just to ask the question How's your soul? How's your soul? So, um, quick introduction. Um, Some of you will obviously know Paul very, very well. Most of you will. But if you're not entirely sure who this man is, um, I repeatedly remind people, because it's really important to honour, Paul and Viv were led All Saints before Kath and I came. So in 2002, Paul and Viv moved from Old Hill, Dudley, down the road to reboot this church. And what we have, we wouldn't have if it wasn't for them. So that's, the, that's who Paul is, and it's a joy to have him as one of the clergy still here. Um, and part of your journey, Paul, has been, out of health issues and all that came with that, um, a, spiritual, a spiritual journey, really, of embracing all of this stuff, hasn't it? So I guess what would be really helpful for us is to understand like something of that, and what you 've learnt along the way, about how do we even begin to do this? like you are forced into it, we 've got the opportunity to choose it. Tell us something about that.
2: Okay, so um, yeah, on one level, it's really weird for me to be here as an advocate of silence and solitude because I used to be quite resistant to that uh, and uh, It's not something I engaged with at all. 25 years ago when I was at Theological College, I was the one who, when they had a quiet day, made sure I'd got my um, Sony Walkman, I say that for people of a certain generation, Uh, and my headphones in and a cassette tape listening to my worship songs, because I couldn't see the point of what they were, um, maybe not explaining to us that well, um, so there was there was a bit of youthful arrogance. Uh, there was a bit of failure to explain what was going on. So I was resistant at that point. I guess over the years of my ministry, I became more open uh, to the possibility that God might meet me in silence and that it might not all be about me talking to him and me listening actively to him, but a place of, of stillness and silence. So I, I went on a couple of... Uh, silent retreats, I had a spiritual director who's still my spiritual director who used to lead silent retreats where you actually get introduced to the whole concept and guided through it with an individual guide. And that began, but that was like a once-a-year thing. That still probably wasn't my daily practice. But when I became ill, which is what happened um, three or four years into my time uh, leading this church, um, some of my old resources for prayer um, were, were taken from me along with my health because I, um, with ME I lost all ability to focus, concentrate, uh, read, really. Things like reading the Bible and doing my quiet time became inaccessible to me. Um, and actually doing very much at all became inaccessible to me. So, as you say, through force of circumstance, Uh, I had to find another way to connect with God, and I found it to be a much more uh, fruitful way and a deepening way uh, than I ever experienced. Um, Now, we don't all have to go through um, the the brokenness and the breakdown of of ill health. Um, I think the way it works for a lot of people is, A, to be talked properly about it, like we're doing here and through this series. Um, I don't think anyone ever Uh, did a sermon like we've heard this morning um, in the first 20 years of me being a Christian. So you know, take that on board, folks. This is really important stuff. But I think the driving force can be, A, just hearing that there is something that's really important and out there and that Jesus did, Mm -hmm. um, and then being helped into that process. The other driving force I I hear amongst many people now is a beginning of dissatisfaction with the ways people have prayed up until now. A sense that what once worked for me isn't now uh, giving me the encounter with God, the connection with God and the depth with God that that I long for. Thank you. So helpful. one of the
0: things we noticed, hopefully you saw that in the scriptures that we looked at, is that Jesus withdrew to the Eremos and he didn't just sort of hang out wondering what next. He, he intentionally went there to pray. And Paul, you often talk with us on the staff team and I know with people you do retreats with and things like that, about silent prayer, which I guess is what Jesus was doing, or part of what Jesus was doing. Can you Can you give us a... A simple introduction, maybe an explanation of what, what do you mean by silent prayer? What, what would praying in the Arraymos look like?
2: Okay, again, this is, it's really helpful to have this unpacked a bit. I can remember someone opening our, uh, our lectures, our Old Testament lectures at Theological College and just saying, let's be silent for a minute. And then half a minute later, so she wasn't even accurate, um, she would just say, Amen. And I, and I was there refusing, because I was quite rebellious as well as arrogant, um, refusing to say amen, because I didn't know what I was saying amen to. And it was a complete failure on my part to understand what was going on, and maybe on her part to explain. Um, so it is different from other forms of prayer. And, and it's not um, to exclude other forms of prayer. Um, But I love that sense of understanding which I've grown into, that all, most of the other forms of prayer that we have are are transactional. There's something almost like uh, a deal going on between us and God. Intercession is us asking God for things. Confession is us asking God to forgive us for things. Even in our praise and worship sometimes we have this sense of we're praising and worship in order that God might bless us with his presence. And silent prayer is much more about us saying to God uh, I just want to be with you here. Uh, And the illustration that I find most helpful uh, for that is that the people that you are most comfortable with in your relationships and in your day-to-day lives uh, will be marked out, I think, by the fact that they're people that you are willing to be silent with. So if I'm on a car journey uh, with someone who I'm just car sharing with, and I know them enough to say, can we share cars on this journey, uh, but not well enough to feel completely at home with them, we will talk for the whole journey, because neither of us feel comfortable enough to shut up in each other's presence. And often that's great, and you can learn a lot about the person. But when I'm with someone I know really well, when Viv and I share a car journey together, we talk some of the time, and we don't talk some of the time, in it... It's not because we've just had an argument, it's just that we're totally comfortable in each other's presence. Um, and so there is a depth of relationship with God where it's okay to say, this, this part of my prayers, there will be other parts to my prayer, but this part of my prayer, I just want to be with you, to sit in your presence, uh, to experience your love. Uh, And I think it's very much an inner prayer, and it's very much a deep prayer, um, and it's very much a simple prayer. So, you know, you talked about me me being further down the road from you, but the thing I love about this whole contemplative world, which I've discovered almost by chance, is that it's a very non-competitive world. And one of the great early teachers on this from the early years of the church said it is good for everyone to consider themselves a beginner in this. Um, and so, sometimes I've heard people say, well, I can't speak up in the prayer meeting because I'm not as good with my words as other people. Folks, this is easy, because you don't need any words.
0: Thank you. And uh, we've had this conversation before, but I think often what can happen is, we, we tend to think, oh, this, this needs to be long, extended times. You know, up a mountain or in a log cabin in wet Wales for a week, and there's totally a place for that. Yes. Um, and I know you've been on week-long silent retreats and all that sort of stuff. But actually, I mean, so, so definitely that. But and I find that when I'm when I've done longer times, it's easier then to have shorter times. But really, I think that where the money is, so to speak, for us in the midst of everyday ordinary life, is learning to enter the eremos in shorter moments of time all over the place. Can you say a little bit about you know, how you punctuate your day and grab time and take it and make it that kind of that practice?
2: Yeah, yeah. So I think you're exactly right. As, as you learn this um, s- skill, practice, as you practice, um, you get better at being able to forge tiny little bits of silence. Uh, which stay with you in, in the noise. If you, if you look at that thing that you said about external silence and internal silence, actually, if you develop the ability to, to still yourself within, um, which initially it's great to have the external silence for, you can learn to be internally still in a noisy world, Um, and we have less choice over that, don't we? We can, at home, we can choose, or in the car, we can choose not to switch on the radio, not to have lots of noises going on in the background, but, I mean, for example, this week I went to London, Uh, I caught a relatively, for me, early train, so I didn't have time to be still at home, Um, but I had an hour and a half then on a train. Now. They don't seem to have quiet carriages. like I used to always choose the quiet carriage. Uh, There didn't seem to be one on this particular train. And so people were talking and making phone calls and watching Netflix and stuff on their tablets. But I was still able to have stillness on the train. But normally at home, my practice is that relatively early on in a day, not first thing, because I'm not a first thing person, it's very rarely before it was light like it was for Jesus. Um, so it's after I've woken up, had some breakfast. For me, I'm blessed with having a house that goes quiet as well, because Viv goes to work and Chris is often at work too. Um, and I have some time and space within the house to, um, to set the alarm, Um, And on a good day, for me, I can then set uh, a 25-minute alarm, um, so I don't have to keep checking the time. I just know that something will go buzz in 25 minutes. If I know that I've got to be out earlier, that time can be less than that. Um, And and again, the more you practice this, the more a small amount of silence can feed into the rest of the day. But by having an intentional time of being still, relatively early on in the day for me um, during which i use um, this might sound slightly uh, contradictory when we say silent prayer one of the ways in which we focus in our prayer because the biggest problem with silent prayer is distractions and other thoughts that come in uh is we focus back on god through a simple word or, or scripture of prayer um God, I'm here for you, or God, you're here for me, or some short little sentence, Lord, have mercy. Even just the name Jesus repeated um, means that whenever you're trying to be still and just sense yourself in the loving presence of God and suddenly you're thinking about the 23 things you have supposed to have already done today, just come back to the name of Jesus. Come back to whatever your prayer phrase is. Um, Once you've done that for a period of the day, whenever the noise uh, of thoughts, fears, anxieties, jobs, tasks, people crashes in on you again, it's much easier to reconnect with that little God loves me, I'm a child of God truth that you've started the day with. So I start the day with that. I usually, if I get chance, do a little walk at lunchtime, and I've chosen to make that walk a walk where I don't listen to podcasts and things. There's a cost to this. I've, I've got a list of podcasts I want to listen to that grows literally longer by the day, because people keep podcasting. I wish they would just stop. <laughs> I wish they would just have like a fast of releasing podcasts so that I could catch up for a bit. But it's only like the books on my unread books shelf that keeps getting longer and longer. So there's there's a cost. I choose not to spend that time listening to worthy and good stuff. And I choose to do my walk in the presence of God. So there's another point in the day in which I've connected with God. And then I try and finish the day uh, with a sense of connecting with him too and reflecting on what the day has brought.
0: Thank you. And as we, uh, When we had a similar conversation with Paul Wilcox, I-, I reminded you that although he's now on sabbatical and it's easy for him because he has a different kind of job, the danger for us is we think, well, it's alright for Paul because he's a spiritual director now and he's got all the time in the world. Actually, he doesn't. Um, and all of us can build this practice into our lives. We've just got to work out how. Um, Paul, I could listen to you for hours on this, but we haven't got hours. Um, what I'm really excited about is two things. One is we're, we are pulling together some resources which we're gonna to put together and send out at the end of this teaching series, and we're gonna try and find some ways to help you go a bit further with it. But one of the things Paul's agreed to do, and I think there should be a slide for this, John, if you could find it. Um, Paul's agreed to lead a quiet day. Um, I think it's sometime in March. 24th of March. There you go, I should know this. Um, which will be uh, facilitated learning this. Um, having been in one of these with Paul, he did one with the staff team, I can totally recommend it. It's limited places, so if you want to um, come, you'll need to book in really quick. Uh, bookings will open tomorrow. We'll send an email out. Uh, if you are not an email, talk to us and we'll sort it. But that's one of the ways that... Um, You can learn a bit more from Paul. You wrote an article in the magazine that's out. Um, You're always happy to talk, aren't you? And um, we are going to pick up on this conversation. So for now, it's a pause, but thank you. So helpful. Um, Here's what I'd like us to do. uh, is two things, okay? We've got five minutes before some of you need to go and collect your children. What I'd love us to do, and some of you will love this, and you'll be like, finally and some of you will hate it, and you'll be counting down the minutes, is I'd love us to have two minutes in silence together. And then, for those of you who, in that silence, know that the Holy Spirit is leading you to embrace the Eremos, and you know, I need this. Like, I have got to make a response today then after those two minutes, I'm going to invite you to come and stand in the aisle or at the front, as we always do, to be prayed for, for the Spirit to come and help you with this. Because some of us, you've just realised today why you are so stressed, and why you are so maxed, and why you don't sleep very well, and why you've got all these unhelpful patterns and habits. And this isn't the only answer, but it's part of the answer. And if that's you, uh, and we'll pray for anybody about anything, but particularly for you, please listen to the leading of the spirit and remember that there's no shame or like anything in coming forward actually there's real strength in that recognize i need this because we all do we're in this together i'm not a master paul's not a master i've just been practicing it a little bit longer so i had some integrity to then teach us is that okay so let's be still and remember what paul said we're not just sitting here waiting we're saying god I'm going to try and dial out the external noise, the creaking of the pews. Wouldn't it be great to get them out? And uh, be still. And I'm going to allow you to speak to me if you want to, but it's about being present. Okay, so let's do that for two minutes. That'll seem like a lifetime for some of you. And it will go in a flash for the rest of you. And then listen to the Lord, okay?